Matthew 16, starting at verse 13 through verse 20. It says, when Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, and some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he charged his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Brother Larry, would you lead us? Amen. So as we got started on our series on church membership, uh, we began noting last week all of the one another's in the New Testament in an attempt to just demonstrate just the sheer quantity of those commands that you cannot live in obedience to the Lord Jesus unless you are being obedient to him in a community of believers known as a church. This week, I want us to go back to where that first began. The text here in Matthew 16 is the first reference to the church by the Lord Jesus. In fact, it is the first reference to church in the Word of God. It might surprise you to find out that there are only two places in the Gospels where the word church gets used. It's here in our text in Matthew 16. And then a couple of chapters over in Matthew 18, Jesus is speaking of issues of discipline and being told to take those to the church. And after that, there's really not a need for the word church to be used in the Gospels. The church is spoken to, it follows the Lord Jesus around as an assembly of believers, it's given the great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every kind of person and every kind of place, baptizing believers and then teaching them all the commands of Jesus. Immediately after the gospels, the book of Acts opens and the church is spoken of as already existing. In Acts 2, for example, it says the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. The church is seen as just a fact of Christian life. 
So our goal this morning is to go back here to this first occasion and see what it has to teach us about the nature of the church which Jesus builds. Verse 13 tells us that Jesus has traveled to Caesarea Philippi. This is far north of Israel. This place had not always been known as Caesarea Philippi until just before this. The city was known as Peneus, but it recently got renamed Caesarea by Herod Philip. Now, when you want to impress Caesar, one of the things you can do is say, well, let's name a town after him. I'll pick that one. It already has a name, but we'll just call it Caesarea. Herod Philip actually got this idea from Herod the Great, who had also named a city Caesarea. So that's why this one is called Caesarea Philippi. It's Philip's Caesarea. The other one is called uh, Caesarea Maritama or, or Maritime Caesarea, the one that's sitting on the coast. We talked about that this morning where Paul was imprisoned there. Okay, This is a kind of strange place for this conversation between Jesus and the disciples to take place. Caesarea Philippi was a kind of center of pagan worship. In fact, in that name that it had before, Peneus, it was named after the mythical god Pan. So if I could just try to set the scene for you for a moment to imagine this, picture walking on ground that's just covered by smooth gravel, and it brings you up to this massive cliff face with on the cliff face near the ground, there's these little insets cut into the cliff for them to put statues of false idols, little insets to put um, idols, if you know anything about uh, mythology, the idols of, of Pan and Echo and Hermes were, were most popular there. There's also a hole coming out the side of this cliff face with a little uh, water spring that's flowing out of this dark cave. And the pagan idol worshipers are convinced that that hole is the entrance to the underworld. They called it the gates of Hades or the gates of hell, as Jesus speaks of it in this text. This is where the Lord Jesus brings his disciples and engages in this conversation and promises to build his church. This, to say the least, would be a strange location for a church building. But of course, the disciples of Jesus engaged in this conversation didn't know much of anything about a church the way we think of it. Well, the Lord Jesus had never spoken of such a thing. So when Jesus says, I will build my church, they wouldn't have thought about a building. They would have only thought about a congregation of people. The word church is the Greek word ekklesia. And it is unfortunate how many times we like assign some theological weight to a word when there is just a common meaning of the word that gets ignored. I'll give you another example of this. Baptize. We have assigned a lot of theological ideas to baptize. But the common meaning of the word baptize is simply to immerse. Right? And if we understand that common meaning of the word, then we'll know something about how baptism is supposed to happen. Well, the same thing happens with this word for church, ecclesia. It has a simple 
meaning. The meaning is congregation. More simply, an assembly. And so nowadays, we've got a majority of Christians who have been convinced that the Lord's Church is this big, universal, invisible collection of all believers. And it is not that. If you want to know the source of where that began, it began early on in Christianity in the roots of Roman Catholicism as the church at Rome and the pastor of the church at Rome sought to exert influence over other assemblies. They started to identify the church as one big worldwide unit. Of course, then we can have one leader and we'll call him the Pope, right? It's, it is regrettable that many Christians believe this today. Because what that belief leads to is the idea that, well, I don't need to participate in a church because I already belong to the church, right? I don't have to be in an assembly. I'm part of that worldwide invisible group of believers. I'm part of the Lord's church. There is absolutely no chance that the Lord's disciples in Matthew 16 having never been told about a church before, would have understood it that way. Using this word that was common to them, Jesus said, I will build my assembly. In fact, as we go through this text, we'll see that the context of this conversation demands that that assembly is exactly what Jesus meant. And when we look at the one other time he uses the word in the Gospels, that's obviously still what he meant. You know, we're not going to preach Matthew 18 today, but think about as Jesus talks about, well, if there is an offense between brothers that can't be handled between two or three, if it can't be settled there, then tell it to the church. I wouldn't even begin to know how to tell my offenses to a worldwide invisible group of all believers. But I can come here and tell y'all about it, right? That's how this works. It's an assembly of believers. A universal, invisible assembly is nonsense because it is an assembly that never assembles. So knowing that the Lord Jesus is promising a congregation, an assembly that he calls my church, let's look at this text and see four foundational truths about the church Jesus builds. Four foundational truths about the church Jesus builds. First, a church knows Jesus. Verse 13 through 16. When Jesus came to the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Y'all, this is all one conversation. It is tempting to teach about the church and sort of just break in there in, in verse 18 where Jesus begins to use this word. But we have to understand this is all part of one conversation. And it's a conversation 
constructed and brought on and intended by the Lord Jesus. We'll misunderstand if we just jump into the middle of it. Jesus didn't start out promising an assembly sort of out of nowhere. He began by seeking this credible confession about who he is. Who do people say that I am? As if he didn't already know and hear the sort of whispered voices and know the hearts of people who were gathered around him. He had seen some people glorifying God over his message and ministry. He'd seen some who were ready to make him a king by force. He knew the Pharisees and Sadducees had a lot to say, and it was hardly complimentary of his character. So when you really look at the question in verse 13, you'll note the question comes with its own answer. Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? This term Son of Man is who Jesus is, regardless of what everyone else says about him. This is the primary title that Jesus used for himself. In fact, of almost a hundred times, this term Son of Man is used in the New Testament The only time it is someone else talking about Jesus as the Son of Man is in Acts when the martyr Stephen, just before his death, said, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. So what's this term mean? Why does Jesus use this term Son of Man about himself? Well, the answer, frankly, is not as simple as we would like to make it out to be. Primarily, it's a term which simply means human. That's the way it got used in the Old Testament in Ezekiel. God spoke to the prophet Ezekiel and continually called him son of man, as if to say, look, human, I'm talking to you. Remember who I am and remember who you are. But this term goes farther. Jesus doesn't just call himself a son of man. He calls himself the son of man. He's not just a human he is the perfect specimen of humanity he is the exact representation of all that humanity should be and then to dig a little farther to the jewish mindset it would be a reference to the fulfillment of old testament prophecy you know even as ezekiel was a prophet during the babylonian captivity there was somebody else There was a prophet that was being given visions and revelation too. And in Daniel's vision, in Daniel 7, he saw a day in the future when all kingdoms would come to an end. And this is what he wrote in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given to him, that is to the Son of Man, dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is that which shall not be destroyed. And so this title could mean something as simple as human. It could be the fulfillment of prophecy declaring that he is the perfect one, the perfect human, the divine human who will reign forever. Jesus is using this and says, who do, what, what, do, what do they think? Who do people say that I am? I know who I am. The disciples before him knows who he is. 
But what do other people say? Obviously, opinions differed. Some said Jesus was John the Baptist, come back to life. Others, Elijah. Others still said Jeremiah or one of the prophets. To me, the ironic part of this is all of them were saying, well, Jesus is somebody who's righteous who has come back from the dead. But when the righteous, perfect Son of Man actually does come back from the dead, all of those people are saying, don't give us any of that resurrection nonsense. You can't expect us to believe that not going to develop this completely this morning because we've talked about it before, but if anybody mistook Jesus for John the Baptist or for Elijah or for Jeremiah, then there must be something about the character of those prophets and the message of the Lord Jesus that was similar. And so, as I've said before, none of those prophets we're exactly a you know, smiling Jewish Mr. Rogers in sandals, right? The preconceptions that we have about Jesus, the people in Jesus' day could not see him that way. He says unto them, but who do you say that I am? In verse 15. And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. One of the great benefits of the King James Version is we get to see the plural form of you, right? Ye, whom do ye, all of you, who, what, do, what do all of you say that I am? So Jesus is not asking individually, he is asking this collective conversation what is it that y'all think and that's going to be important in a moment remember i said the context of what jesus is saying here when he says in a minute i will build my church demands jesus is talking about an assembly of believers and even before saying that to them he's talking to them as an assembly of believers what do all of you have to say jesus is going to build a church an assembly that has a common answer, a common confession about who Jesus is. They're going to assemble and reassure one another of that confession. Peter is brave enough or brash enough to serve as a spokesman for the whole group, and there's two parts of his answer to focus on for a moment. First, in verse 16, he says, You are the Christ. This is really a turning point in the Gospels because no one has really said that so straightforward up until now. The word shows up, of course, in other Gospels, in Matthew, for example, before this, but always with Matthew as kind of the narrator. So, for example, Matthew's Gospel opens and says this is the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right Or now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. This is Matthew later acting as a narrator for the story. But this is kind of a light bulb moment when someone starts asserting out loud that Jesus is Christ. And I sort of assume most people understand this term Christ, but it's worth re-explaining now again so that we're all on the same page and understand Because unfortunately, there is a group of people out there who if you asked them, they would say, well, Christ is Jesus' last name. Back in the Old Testament, there were numerous promises of an anointed one 
who would come and defeat sin. He would rule on the throne of David. This anointed one would be the suffering servant of God. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew term for that anointed one was Messiah, right? There's this coming Messiah, this coming anointed one. When we get to the New Testament, because it's written in a different language, in Greek, that term anointed is Christ, Christos, right? So when Peter here says, you are the Christ, he's saying, you are that anointed one. You are the Messiah who's going to come and save his people. The second part of Peter's answer is, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Again, understanding the scene here is probably helpful. That rock cliff in front of them has those little cutouts for the false idols, like Pan and Echo and Hermes, gods and sons of gods. But Peter's overwhelmed by the reality that those things, they're just dead statues, and Jesus is the living flesh and blood embodiment of the living God. And so between this term son of man and son of God and Christ Messiah, we've got a a good picture of the person and work of Jesus. He is perfectly human. He is perfectly divine. He is the fulfillment of God's promise of salvation. And it's important you you understand that that conversation comes first. Jesus is saying he's going to build his church and assembly, but the very foundational essence of that assembled group of disciples is that they are believers in regard to who Jesus is. They have a common confession. Contrary to what the whole world might say, whatever all this, those other people have to say about him, they are willing to stand here in the middle of this godless, wicked society and say, Jesus is the perfect son of man. He's the promised Messiah. He is the son of the living God. A church knows Jesus. Second, a church knows Jesus because of God's grace. Look at verse 17. Jesus answered and said to him, that is said to Simon Peter, Blessed Art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed it unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. Because Peter had acted as a kind of spokesman for the group, Jesus offers this blessing, this beatitude, really. Directly for him, Jesus refers to him by his first given name. Now we understand Jesus is going to start calling him something different very soon. Basically, all Jewish men were identified by their first name and the name of their father. And so Jesus says, you're Simon Barjona, right? The the context here is the idea that though true revelation is not coming from Peter's father, but from Peter's heavenly father. It's as if Jesus is looking at this precious disciple and saying, oh, Peter, you are the son of Jonah, but it was not your earthly father who taught you this truth. That can only come from your heavenly father's revelation. Knowing Jesus, really knowing Jesus in the saving sense, 
requires the intervention and illumination of God. This is not a product of human will or human intelligence. It is the product of divine illumination. Jesus says in John 6, Every man that has heard and has learned of the Father comes to me. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draws him. Or Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, The natural man doesn't receive the things of God because they're spiritually discerned. Y'all, I don't know that as we read through this, we quite get the feel of what this conversation must have been like. So far in this text, Jesus has referred to himself as the Son of Man. Peter responds by essentially saying, look, you're, you're not just the Son of Man. You're not just any human. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. And now Jesus comes back with, well, you're not just Simon, the son of Jonah. You've got a heavenly Father that is illuminating your heart and mind. You knowing me proves that you are a child of God. What we have in this room this morning is an assembly of believers with a common confession about Jesus, and yet there is not a single one of us that holds that confession because of our superior intellect or our excellent intuition or any other thing about our nature that makes us somehow more noble than anyone else. The teaching of the Lord Jesus here is telling Peter his accurate confession about the Savior is only possible through God himself revealing this to Peter. This is the same lesson that Peter himself, or that that Paul taught. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, you know, for by grace you're saved through faith, and that's not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Right? You're saved by grace, undeserved favor. You're saved by grace, through faith. But he says before you start thinking that somehow that faith is something that you conjured up, something that you understood, something you did to earn God's favor, you need to know that even that faith that you received is a gift from God. Nothing you've done, nothing you've done has given you any cause to brag about this understanding. A church is filled with disciples of the Lord Jesus who know nothing about him except what God himself has determined for them to know. But the attitude we have toward that revelation can take us in two directions. The first is the direction of pride. God himself has revealed this to me. So I must be greater than you. Or we can accept the biblical perspective to say that God has revealed this. Even to me, His grace must be greater than we can imagine. A church knows Jesus. A church knows Jesus because of God's revelation. Third, a church is founded by and founded on Jesus alone. Verse 18. But I say unto you that you are Peter, 
And upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, according to Roman Catholicism, this is where Jesus has authorized Peter to build the church, to be the first pope, even gives him authority in the next verse to rule over the earth however he desires. But Peter does not build Jesus' church, nor was Jesus' church ever his to do with as he wished. Jesus builds his church. He says so right here. I will build my church. Now the classic explanation of this text is purely from like a theological perspective, right? We know that there's a, there's a play on words that's happening here in verse 18. You are Peter, Jesus says, using the word petros, which means a little rock, a little stone, like any of those thousand smooth pebbles that they were walking on. But then Jesus says, upon this rock I will build my church. That's actually the same word, but it is, it seems odd to say this, a feminine version of that word. So it's instead of petros, which is masculine, it's petra, which is feminine. But Greek feminine and masculine does not work the way that English feminine and masculine do. Right? It doesn't have to mean male or female. It can be a bit more descriptive than that. So think of it like this. Petra, when Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church, think of it as like the mother of all rocks. A massive, huge rock. Right? Jesus saying, you are a, a little stone. I'm going to build my church on the massive rock. That is, Jesus is contrasting Peter this is the name he's given to him. You're the little, little rock, the little pebble. He's contrasting Peter to the big rock and saying he's going to build his church on the big rock, not the little stone. Like, to, to understand these words, think, think again about Jesus ending the Sermon on the Mount saying as a wise man builds his house on the rock. He uses the petra. No wise man ever would build his house on a pebble. And so the very use of this wordplay reveals the contrast between Peter and the foundation of the church. So far from suggesting that Peter is the founder or the foundation of the church, Peter cannot be either of those. Otherwise, the words Jesus is using here are just senseless. And so what is the foundation? What is this foundation that Jesus says he will build his church on? Well, actually, two potential suggestions seem plausible. It's possible that Jesus is speaking of the confession of Peter, that that confession that he, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, is that great rock, so that all those who confess Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, will be the foundation of the church. The other possibility, much more likely, is that Jesus speaks of himself as this great Petra, this great massive rock. This is much more likely, especially given the many other times in the Old and New Testament, when that word rock is used to refer to God. That explanation has a lot going for it, especially since the New Testament, this Petra, 
is used to refer to Jesus many times in Romans 9, 33 and 1 Peter 2, 8. He is the rock of offense. In 1 Corinthians 10, 4, he is the spiritual Petra, the spiritual rock which watered Israel in the wilderness. Other scriptures describing the foundation of the church make it clear that Jesus is the rock or foundation. You can look, or you might remember, for example, in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, it does talk about the church with the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, but immediately adds Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. That is the true foundation on which everything starts. Really, if, if we have any doubts about what Jesus means here, maybe it's best to let Peter speak for his understanding of it. In 1 Peter 2, verses 3 through 8, he calls the individual Christians living stones, using the word to mean small pebbles or building blocks. But he says those living stones are laid on a foundation. And then he describes Jesus as, quote, the chief cornerstone, the stone the builders disallowed, the headstone of the corner, the stone of stumbling, the rock, the Petra of offense. It's difficult to imagine that Peter, remembering the words of Jesus, wouldn't have faithfully pictured the assembly that Jesus built. And clearly, Jesus is the foundation of the church. Now, that's the theological explanation. I believe all that to be true. Sometimes I wonder if we haven't just complicated this a little bit more than we need to. I've held that explanation for several years, and like I said, I think it is right. But then I had a couple of pastor pals who went on a trip to the Holy Land, visited this site, and came back with their minds blown having visited this site. And it really is a challenge to what I thought I understood. So again, I, I want you to just picture this scene again. These Jewish men have traveled far north into a predominantly Gentile area. It is just filled. It's rife with pagan worship. There's a cave over there that somebody says, you know, a lot of people say that this comes from the underworld, right? And there's these little insets in the, the walls of the cliff where there's areas carved out to worship some false idols. Under their feet, there's thousands of these little pebbles, these tiny stones. It's like walking on smooth gravel and towering above it all is this cliff face, this massive rock which just leaves everything in its shadow. There's so much question in that place in people who, who don't understand what it is to worship God. They don't even understand what it means to be divine. And so Jesus asks the disciples at that place, who is it that people say that I am? And they come back with the, the answers of, well, they say all kinds of things. And then he asks, well, what do you all say about me. And Peter's answer is this fantastic statement. You are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And yet there's not room in that place for the worship of Christ. There's this lifeless pagan idolatry is all that exists. And so immediately Jesus promises, I'm going to change that. I'm going to create a place for worship. 
And instead of saying, we're going to tear all this down and I'm going to build a temple or, or right here, I'm going to build an altar. He says, I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build my assembly. The place to worship the Lord Jesus is not a building. It's, not, it's a collection of people. And there right in front of him is this collection of people who, have, who are assembled and they are in agreement with this common confession of who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. The makings of his assembly has already started and Jesus says he's going to make an even bigger one. And so the play on words for Peter is, look, we've got all these little stones around here on the ground. You're like one of those. But the church that I'm building is going to be built on the foundation of the biggest rock around. I'm going to build my church on this Petra, this massive rock. And if they look, they're going to see this massive rock face in front of them, that rock wall that is largely ignored, but it is overshadowing everything else. It's just a visual image, but it's one that works. In this specific illustration, Jesus is the rock. He is the foundation of the church. But just picture that scene with all its idolatry, the little cave with the stream coming out of it. The people say, that's the gates of Hades. That's the the gates of hell there. Jesus is going to build this place of worship that overshadows the whole thing. And this place of worship is going to be an assembly with a common confession of who he is. And it's going to be built on this rock-solid, high and elevated, entirely secure from anything else going on. Right, The the gates of Hades are going to have nothing to, to compete with this. And here we are 2,000 years later, and all of those little statues are gone All of the buildings that they had put up are gone. The stream doesn't even come out of the cave anymore today. But that massive cliff, you can still walk up to it. It's still there. Now just think for a moment about that little statement, I will build my church. Knowing that there's only two places in the Gospels that Jesus even spoke the word church that we know of. We might be tempted to say, well, he didn't say enough about it. But that one statement, I will build my church, tells us plenty. Who is the builder of the church? It's Jesus himself. He's building. He's the divine architect and builder of this assembly. He was already doing that as he personally called disciples to join together in an assembly of individuals following him around. This assembly is something that he's building. Whose assembly is it? Well, Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. It's, it's, It's his assembly. This isn't my assembly. This isn't your church. We've got to remember, this is the Lord Jesus's church. He isn't making it in order to to give to you. He's building his church as a means to bring glory to God through himself. Individually, individually as believers in Jesus, we are not our own. We are bought with a price. Collectively, as a congregation, as an assembly of Jesus, we're blood-bought assembly. We're a blood-bought assembly congregation 
that belongs to him. He's built it, and he's built it for himself. And this divine architect who is himself doing the building and is building something for himself, he says, he knows what he wants. He says, I will build my ecclesia, my assembly. If the Lord Jesus had wanted a building or a ministry or a school or a hospital or a social club, he's more than able to build any of those things. He wants an assembly. He wants an assembly for his own glory. And so any person who dares to think, well, I don't have to be part of a church because I'm part of the big universal invisible church. You are making yourself out to be part of something the Lord Jesus never built and never wanted. You're refusing to be actively engaged in the one institution that Jesus did build and does want. A place of worship. This idolatrous world cannot overcome an assembly of believers with a common confession in him for his glory. So a church knows Jesus. A church knows Jesus because of God's grace. A church is founded by and founded on Jesus. And finally, a church exercises the authority that Jesus gives. Verses 19 and 20. I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he charged his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Now, we said before that Jesus is talking to the whole group, right? We know he's, he's addressing this group. He's asking, who do you all say that I am? Even though Peter answers as a spokesman, the church that Jesus built is going to be given authority to bind and loose, he says, to prohibit and to permit. But a church has to do so in accordance with the guideline of Scripture, which is the revelation of God. I said, I'm not going to try to belabor the point too much, but verse 19 contains a couple of phrases that are notoriously difficult to translate. They are future perfect passive tense it means something a little different than the roman catholicism view of jesus is telling peter okay what you say goes you make the rules here and we'll change the rules in heaven to match here's how a couple other translations have handled it well christian standard bible which is very recent says whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. The New American Standard Bible, which tries to be as literal as possible, almost to a fault, says it similarly, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. This is not saying that the Lord's church has the ability to change the standards of God's heavenly revelation. We're not... We're not making independent decisions that somehow then get ratified and reapproved in heaven. What it's saying is we are supposed to be passing on the decisions 
which have already been made in heaven. This isn't about having authority to bind or loose Satan or people. It's not about the Pope having authority to loose anyone from their sins or to bind anybody in purgatory. This is about exercising the delegated authority revealed from heaven itself. Now, how do we do that? How is it the church exercises the authority of heaven itself? Well, we do it when we fulfill the commands of the Lord Jesus to declare his gospel to the world at large. If you want to speak with the authority of Jesus, then try telling people, if you repent of your sin and place your faith in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved from your sins. And if you refuse to repent and continue in rebellion against the gospel, you'll die in your sins and suffer eternal righteous wrath of God. That's the only binding and loosing we get to do. The only prohibiting and permitting that we get to do. The Lord's church is firmly rooted in his authority. Now I know then that verse 20 appears odd in that regard. I'm saying we're going to declare the message of the gospel and yet verse 20 says Jesus ordered his disciples that they should tell no man he is Jesus the Messiah. Restricting that message at that time was a sign of living in Christ's authority. Their obedience was obedience to his authority, right? But it was temporary. If you can put yourself back into the time of the Gospels, there is this specific moment in time in Matthew 16, widely declaring Jesus as the Messiah was detrimental to his ministry. He got followed around by people who wanted to see miracles, wanted to see a good show. He was unable to do the the teaching and preaching and the ministry that he was called to do. And so until it was time for that declaration to be made, Jesus told them, you don't say that to anybody. And their obedience to that was recognizing his authority. But this is not a command that comes forward to us today. Right? Don't open up Matthew 16, 20 and say, I'm going to follow the commands of Jesus. It says, keep your mouth shut. Don't tell anybody about him. Because we understand this same assembly. After Jesus has died and is raised from the dead, he speaks to this assembly that he's made and he changes this command and says, what? All authority is given to me in heaven and in earth. Right? So all of this authority that's being talked about, binding and loosing things on earth and in heaven, all of that belongs to Jesus. All authority is given to me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore, right? Because he has the authority. You go and preach to all nations, baptizing those believers in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, teaching them to do all the things I've commanded to you. That continuing Great Commission is how we live in submission to the authority of Jesus. This is what we've received from him. Okay, we've got to wrap this up, but when we back up to this first message about a church, in the mind and the purpose of the Lord Jesus, what is this church? Well, it's a place of worship 
separate from the pagan world around them. It is not a building, but it is an assembly united together. It is his creation. It is his assembly, which he built for his glory. It's made up of disciples who know Jesus and uphold a common confession as an invincible declaration against wickedness. It's the assembly of individual children of God who have been illuminated by the truth of Jesus from God the Father himself who has revealed it to us. Y'all, what is the Lord's church to you? If it is a universal, invisible collective of all saints, you're wrong. If the Lord's church to you is a building, you're wrong. If church to you is that thing that we do for an hour before Sunday school and after Sunday school, you're wrong. If in your mind a church is a collection of believers who by God's grace and revelation know Jesus as their Savior, as their perfect man, as the Messiah, as the Son of the living God, and we assemble together to obey His commands for His glory, then you know the kind of church that Jesus has built. 